You're listening to Bad Bets, a podcast from the Wall Street Journal that unravels big business dramas that have had a big impact on our world. This first season chronicles the collapse of Enron. I'm John M. Schweller. By the time former CEO Jeff Skilling left Enron in August 2001, he transformed it from a sleepy energy company to a corporate trailblazer. He was the face of Enron's success. And throughout the 1990s, the rising stock price was a reflection of investors' confidence in his brilliant ideas and his bravado. But their faith was also fueled by the numbers, earnings reports that seemed to tell an unmistakable story. Enron's profits were growing by leaps and bounds. In this episode, we're going to take a close look at the man behind the curtain, the guy who engineered those numbers, and the people who decided to expose him. Stay with us. My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Enron's chief financial officer was a guy named Andy Fastow. Fastow was charged in a 109-count indictment for various financial crimes. He ultimately pleaded guilty to two fraud counts, including stealing millions of dollars from Enron in one of his deals. He spent nearly five years in federal prison. Now, you might think it could be hard to get work with that kind of resume. But after his release in 2011, Fastow started landing public speaking gigs. He talked to his audiences about ethics and business, how you can technically follow all the rules and still be lying to the public. I should have been called chief loophole officer. That's all I did every day. And we were the best at it. The way I, I looked at it is whoever could best exploit those rules gives their company a competitive advantage. And it's my job to give my company a competitive advantage. That was my job, to find loopholes. I should note, Fastow declined to be interviewed for this podcast. What you just heard is from a speech Fastow gave at a financial conference in the Netherlands in 2018. Here's his basic message. His successes and his failures came from doing the same things. In a different clip from his corporate speaking reel, Fastow stands on stage in a suit and tie, holding up his prison identification card in one hand and his CFO of the Year Award in the other. A reform convict show and tell. I got both of these for doing the same deals. How is that possible? Fastow doesn't beat around the bush. He admits to committing fraud while he was Enron CFO from 1998 to 2001. And in so doing, I caused a great deal of harm, not just financial harm, but a lot of personal harm to people as well. But he also wants to explain why he did much of what he did, why he felt it was part of his job. Enron had problems, and Andy Fastow was the company's fixer. Too much debt? Call Andy. Not enough cash? Call Andy. And it's not like he was some rogue operative. Here he is in that 2018 speech in the Netherlands again. It's been written as a story of there was a small group of sinister guys sitting in a dimly lit conference room trying to break the law. That's, that's not the story. And by the way, that's not even scary, if that were the story. What makes Enron really scary is that it was a bunch of people sitting in a brightly lit conference room 
with the accountants, with the auditors, with the attorneys, with the bankers, all thinking that what they were doing was the right thing to do. It was out in the open. Everyone gave their approval. Former Enron CFO Andy Fastow was the main man in some of the company's most complicated deals. According to SEC filings and court records, he raised hundreds of millions of dollars to bolster Enron's finances. For a while, it seemed to be working. Fastow was celebrated. But some of his employees saw problems with how he was managing the company's finances. Problems that eventually became too big to ignore. One of his employees even came to us. You're putting the fox in the hen house. There's no question that this deal is completely legal. But make no mistake about it, this deal stinks. The math on the spreadsheet didn't add up. You know, someone is going to be out $700 million. Who is it? You're listening to season one of Bad Bets, the story of Enron's collapse. This is episode three, The Fixer and the Whistleblowers. Jeff Skilling brought Andy Fastow to Enron in 1990. Over the next decade, Fastow helped Enron meet ambitious goals for earnings growth and cash flow. He and his team made complicated deals with giant banks and set up partnerships with well-heeled investors. The job became even more pressing as some of Enron's business bets soured. Fastow was promoted to CFO in 1998. One of the people who helped Fastow do these fancy financial deals was Jim Timmons, Enron's director of private equity. Enron had such a wonderful name at that time. They could do no wrong, and everybody loved Enron. Timmons had started in the oil and gas business in the late 1970s, then worked as a stockbroker, and eventually went into private equity. He helped raise investment money from big institutional investors, like pension funds. And that work led him to Fastow, who hired Timmons in early 1997. He was thrilled to be working for Enron, working for the most innovative company out there, It would be like working at Apple or Tesla today. They were perceived to be on the cutting edge of every industry. Just two years later, Fastow asked Timmons for help on a project. It would eventually cut the legs out from under Enron. He said, I need a pool of capital to make investments with. Come up with some structure and then let's talk about it. He got to work, wanting to deliver to his boss. Soon enough, I thought I had a great idea but it had to be structured the right way to be a success. Here's how Timmons says he saw it working. Investors would put their money into an independent fund outside of Enron, and those tens of millions of dollars would then be invested in various Enron ventures. Some of that money would eventually help finance Enron's broadband initiative, the one we told you about last episode. It was to be a blind pool fund. It's blind because these investors wouldn't have a direct say in how their money was spent. Timmons was excited until he learned something that didn't sit right. Andy Fastow planned to be the general partner of this fund. He'd be overseeing the money and making the investment decisions. I remember thinking, how can a CFO of a major company be general partner of a private equity fund? And that was not structured the right way from day one. Do you remember what you said to Andy when he, you know, in response to when he said, oh, I'm going to be the general partner? I said, how can you be the general partner when you're CFO of Enron? That's when he said, I got a code of ethics waiver from the board. So I didn't say anything more that day. 
But I went back to my office and could hardly believe what I'd heard. It's like a divorce lawyer working for both sides, promising everyone the best deal and making a double fee. Not to mention that Fastow would be investing his own money to the tune of nearly $4 million in this fund. Timmons was fuming. You're putting the fox in the hen house. So to have the CFO of Enron as general partner of a private equity fund where he could control which assets would go into that partnership was a very dangerous situation and, in my view, an intolerable conflict of interest. Fastow named the fund LJM after his wife, Lee, and their sons, Jeffrey and Matthew. Did you have any thoughts of saying, well, maybe I should go to somebody else in the company higher up, you know, Skilling, Lay, whoever, and raise my concerns with them? Maybe they're not thinking this through somehow. I don't know if that would have done any good. I think Andy had enough power at the time where if somebody double-crossed him like that or, or tried to second-guess him, I think they would have been a, a real short-timer at the company. Uh, that's just my opinion. You were worried about if you did something that Andy would have no hesitation in retaliating against you? I was very afraid of that. Yeah, everybody was. Timmons had his reasons to be nervous about challenging Andy Fastow. He didn't want to lose his job, and he certainly didn't want Fastow to lose his temper. There's just the prevailing wisdom within the finance group that Andy ran that he was pretty ruthless if he didn't like somebody. I don't know that I know anyone at Enron that really has a positive experience working with Andy. Cindy Olson, head of HR at the time, said people were scared of Fastow. One of my colleagues at Enron said he would blow your hair back with yelling at you and getting really upset. And then he'd calm down and almost apologize. He did that consistently with people. But he was also effective. He brought in cash from investors, hundreds of millions of dollars, which helps explain how he became CFO of one of America's largest companies in his 30s. Fastow reportedly made millions as CFO. But according to Timmons, it still wasn't enough. I had heard him say that on multiple occasions, that he felt underpaid for the services he was providing the company. Did you ever get a sense of you know, what was motivating him to, to do that? I think the potential for financial gain was a primary motivator. He could make quite a bit of money as general partner of a multi-hundred million dollar private equity fund. Fastow later acknowledged in court that he, quote, stood to benefit greatly financially from being general partner of LJM. Timmons says there were cursory conversations about him having some ongoing role in the LJM operation, but they went nowhere. Mainly, he says, he tried to avoid the whole LJM effort. Still, he kept getting calls from potential investors. People wanted in. It had the Enron magic. But Timmons knew these people didn't all represent high-stake investors with extra cash to gamble. Some were public pension funds, representing thousands of teachers and other government employees, hardly the Ferrari and private jet set. The nation's biggest public employee pension fund, CalPERS in California, was looking to put $75 million into LJM. Eventually, Timmons said he just couldn't stay quiet.
I did not want to mislead my friends in the institutional community. I wanted to be honest and straightforward. Timmons decided it was time to warn them, but he had to be discreet. When it's your job to recruit investors, the idea that you're nudging them away is not something you want getting back to your boss, especially when your boss is Andy Fastow. So Timmons hatched a plan. He called up someone he knew at CalPERS. I said, can you meet me in San Francisco for lunch? I need to talk to you about Enron. Timmons booked the trip secretly and paid for it on his own. He just couldn't risk anyone at Enron finding out. They got together at Timmons' favorite spot in San Francisco, the Big Four restaurant at the Huntington Hotel. Named after 19th century railroad tycoons with ornate wood paneling, stained glass windows, it was the kind of place for long martini lunches and big deals. And we were together three and a half hours, and he brought a blank yellow pad. And I told him all of my concerns and the questions he should ask Skilling and where I saw the minefields going forward with this structure and this partnership. In short, Timmons told him about the conflict of interest. The CalPERS official took notes on that yellow pad. Timmons was pretty clear. I think... I would stay away from it. The CalPERS official ultimately agreed with Timmons. It was too risky to invest. And so at the end of the lunch, he said, I need to pay you for my lunch because you can't buy me lunch. And I said, you didn't see me today. I wasn't here. And we parted. A few days after the secret lunch meeting, Timmons got word that CalPERS had decided not to invest in the LJM fund. Well, I smiled from ear to ear. I felt like I saved them some real headline risk. You're a persuasive man. I was honest. Timmons said when Fastow found out about CalPERS' decision, he was furious. But Timmons was emboldened. Doing what he thought was right felt good. Other potential investors called. Timmons quietly warned them off too, protecting them from the inside. But he finally reached a breaking point in late 1999. He was at a meeting where Fastow was pitching a major pension fund. The pension official asked Fastow about the conflict of interest. And the potential investor said, Andy, this looks like a really interesting deal. We love off-market deals, but we have a question for you. Who do you work for, us or the shareholders of Enron because you're CFO? Timmons said Fastow made clear he was advocating for one side. And he said, oh, that's easy. I work for you, my limited partners, because I can make so much more money as general partner of a private equity fund than I can as CFO of Enron. We tried getting in touch with a pension fund official who was at that meeting, but he didn't return phone calls. Timmons was stunned. Fastow was telling the investors they came first, not Enron. I can understand Tim's reaction. But when I think about it, Fastow probably couldn't have said anything else. And Enron likely wouldn't have wanted him to. First, who would invest money in a partnership where the top guy says his loyalty isn't to the partners? Second, for LJM to help Enron, it had to be independent under accounting rules. Fastow couldn't favor Enron. Top company officials seemed okay with that. They later explained they were confident they could defend the company's interests, essentially from its own CFO. Timmons, however, had had enough. 
I hated the conflicts. I hated the self-dealing, that I just didn't want to be a part of it. Timmons made up his mind. It was time to leave the company. So I went into his two-story office, and uh, I said, I just want to let you know that I'm quitting. And I said, and it's because of LJM. I don't think it's good for Enron. I think it sends the wrong message to the institutional community. So not only do I not want any part of that going forward, I'm resigning. His only response was, well, I think it's good for the company. And I'm sorry you're quitting. For Fast Out, it didn't really matter what Timmons thought. He had long since secured the support of Enron's top management and its board. Bear in mind, the board was very supportive of Enron management because the Enron share price had just continually ticked up through the years. Enron's board was top-notch. People from business, academia, and government. Some had a good deal of expertise in finance and accounting, and they were well compensated, earning twice the average paid to public company directors, according to a later Senate report. Yet, during those last years, the board didn't stop fast out, even when they could have. Here's Fastow on Financial News TV channel Real Vision in a pretty recent appearance, December 2020. Another chance for him to expound on ethics and business. In this clip, he's referencing that first meeting the Enron board had to approve his participation. Related party transactions are not illegal. Conflicts of interest are not illegal, but they have to go to the board for approval. And so they convened a special board meeting to debate this situation. During that presentation, Fastow says Enron's outside accountants and lawyers gave their stamp of approval. Of course, there was a potential for a publicity nightmare. In the middle of the conversation, the chairman of the executive committee of the board turns to Skilling and he says, Jeff, what's our biggest risk here? And Skilling responded, Wall Street Journal risk. There's no question that this deal is completely legal. But make no mistake about it, this deal stinks. And he said, look, if a reporter gets hold of this or an equity analyst gets hold of it, it's going to stink for a while. Some board members did raise concerns. For instance, Rebecca Mark Jusbosch, who is the CEO of Enron International, told us that she voted against Fastow's conflict waiver. She described Fastow's statements about the meeting as finger-pointing and self-serving. She says the conflict of interest issue was discussed a lot. And she doesn't recall Skilling making remarks anything like those described by Fastow. But in the end, the board approved it. According to a later Senate report, the whole meeting lasted just an hour. They seemed more worried about the optics of the conflict than the conflict itself. To hear Fastow during that Real Vision interview, nobody at the time thought it was all that risky. It's the hubris when it comes to identifying pricing and managing risk that gets us into trouble. There's no way the Wall Street Journal reporter John Mschweiler is going to come down to Houston, sit down with Arthur Anderson and, and the outside attorneys, and then write an article that basically says, never mind. Yeah. That's not going to happen. You're right about that, Andy. Enron gave me those assurances about the accountants and the lawyers. It didn't hold us back from publishing anything. Enron board members later told investigators, they thought the LJM arrangement would benefit Enron, help the company do deals faster and better, 
and that Fastow's conflicted loyalties were not a big concern. Other Enron execs could control that. Arthur Anderson would be found guilty in 2002 of obstruction of justice in connection with the Enron case. It effectively went out of business later that year. The conviction would be overturned by the Supreme Court because of faulty jury instructions, but too late to help Anderson. Here's Fastow again on Real Vision. So you would think today, right, looking back, everyone would have just said timeout, you know, kill the deal. They didn't. I still shake my head when I think about the decision to approve LJM. So many smart people, expert opinions, so many comforting assurances. Yet none of that could change the fact they were greenlighting a giant conflict of interest involving their top financial officer. They put Enron on a road that, a little over two years later, took the company over a cliff. Meanwhile, the truth about Andy Fastow's financial schemes was buried in Enron's books until one accountant unearthed it. My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. It took a lot of people board members, top management, lawyers, outside accountants, to give Enron CFO Andy Fastow the approvals he needed to create and run outside partnerships. But Jim Timmons, the company's director of private equity, who reported to Fastow, wasn't the only one who saw problems with these partnerships. Another one of Fastow's employees was also seeing red flags. My name is Sharon Watkins. I grew up in Tomball, Texas, went to the University of Texas at Austin, Hook'em Horns. I got an undergrad and graduate degrees in accounting. After school, she was working in New York, but she wanted to come back home, and Enron was her number one choice. The headhunter told me, oh yeah, dream on. Everybody wants to work at Enron. It was really the place to work. Watkins joined Enron in the early 1990s. She had a reputation for having a short fuse, especially when she thought someone was being incompetent. By 2001, she was a vice president in the Global Finance Unit, working for Andy Fastow. Shortly after she joined Fastow's operation in June, a spreadsheet landed on her desk. It listed about 200 Enron assets worth around $2 billion. Watkins was asked to evaluate which assets could be sold for a good price that year and which ones should be held longer. It was a pretty humdrum assignment. But then something on that spreadsheet caught her eye. Some assets were connected to four entities that were part of LJM, the outside partnership operation that Andy Fasta was using to help Enron's finances. Together, the four had a memorable name, the Raptors. The Raptors were providing hedges, protecting Enron from having to report very large losses. The math on the spreadsheet didn't add up. There was this column that was showing three to four hundred million dollars of losses. And that's when I was just shown these complicated, you know, structured transaction charts. Hedging is commonly and legitimately used by companies to manage their investment risks. If you lose money on some investments, the hedge, like an insurance policy, will cover your losses. Generally, the hedge is done with an independent party who, for a fee, 
takes on the risk. But as the SEC filings made clear, LJN was hardly what you'd call an independent party, not with Enron's own CFO running it. Perhaps even stranger, the Raptors were using Enron's own stock to hedge, to absorb the losses. By hedging with his own stock, Enron was kind of betting on itself. That is, if the stock had stayed strong, the company's earnings reports would have looked okay. But there's a risk to that approach. If the stock suddenly plummeted, the fig leaf would flutter away. There would be nothing to hide all the losses on those investments. They would hit the bottom line. This all could have worked if one of two things had happened. The value of the assets rebounded, or Enron's stock price stayed strong. But neither happened, leaving a massive loss to account for. You know, someone is going to be out $700 million. Who is it? Essentially, the company was taking money from its right pocket to cover losses in its left. But you just can't do business with yourself. You can't. If you've done a hedging transaction that's locking in a value that you've got on your books, that hedging transaction has to be with an outside third party. It can't be a bunch of paper shell companies. Alarmed and with big losses on her mind, Watkins took her concerns straight to the top. Enron CEO Ken Lay. First, she wrote a memo and sent it to Lay. Here she is, reading from it. I am incredibly nervous that we will implode in a wave of accounting scandals. My eight years of Enron work history will be worth nothing on my resume. The business world will consider the past successes as nothing but an elaborate accounting hoax. I should note here, Watkins wrote this memo on August 15, 2001, very accurately predicting what would become of Enron. Watkins thought it was her job to ask questions when things didn't add up. And this was big, hundreds of millions of dollars big. She wasn't sure what to do. She got checked with some colleagues. They warned her against rocking the boat. Why are you doing this, Sharon? Are you trying to tear down the company? And, you know, I remember saying, look, you know, we're the Titanic. Yes, the lights are on, the band is playing, but this kind of fraud is going to sink us. I didn't drive us into the iceberg. I'm just trying to warn the captain of the ship. A week later, Watkins met with Leigh, Enron's captain, face to face. She was fired up and ready. She only had 30 minutes. She quickly took her seat in Lay's conference room. You know, he came in, shook my hand like he'd never met me before, even though I'd done a few board presentations. And, you know, I started in on my concerns. She told Lay about that spreadsheet, about the Raptors. Watkins explained it all. She referenced PowerPoint slides and memos. Thought she had it all pretty much buttoned up. But instead of being alarmed, she says Ken Lay was weirdly detached. And he was sitting there. He didn't ask too many questions. Um, and he said something partway through our discussion, like, but you think Andy Fastow's a good CFO, right? He's doing a good job, right? And I didn't know how to respond. You know, I'm sitting here saying that your chief financial officer and your chief accounting officer have committed horrible accounting fraud, and you just asked me whether I think he's doing a good job? I sat there like a bump on a log, just completely confused as to how to respond to that in any way that wasn't insulting. Watkins hit her shock, worried Lay wasn't taking her seriously. She said Lay assured her they would look into it and fix any problems. 
So how did you feel when the meeting ended and you walked out? If I remember right, I felt relieved. Like, I'm not the captain of the ship. I just told him what's wrong. It's his job to get it fixed. And did you actually think he was going to do something serious about it? Yes. Yes. I would have asked Ken Lay for his side of this whole saga, but he's no longer alive. In the aftermath of Enron's collapse, Lay testified in court that he took Watkins' concerns seriously. He said he ordered an investigation, which confirmed that the Raptors, the hedges against reporting large losses, were legal and properly accounted for. In 2006, he was convicted of securities and wire fraud, but died before he could be sentenced or appeal, which vacated his convictions. He denied wrongdoing throughout. After meeting with Lay, Watkins left town for a couple of days for a much-needed vacation, a long weekend in San Miguel, Mexico, to celebrate her birthday and wait for results. When she returned from her vacation, there was a voicemail waiting for her from HR. Please come see me as soon as you come into the office. It was from Cindy Olson, the head of HR. Watkins remembers something Olson told her that day, that Andy Fastow had gotten wind of her meeting with Lay and that he wanted her computer. And she said, Andy has not behaved well at all. And in fact, that's making Ken Lay raise eyebrows. They gave Watkins a new computer. Much later in court, Fastow would acknowledge he wanted Watkins' computer seized. Soon after Watkins' August meeting with Lay, the company transferred her to a new job in human resources. She had put in a request to get out of Fastow's department. Watkins had been hopeful when she walked out of Lay's office in August, but as the weeks went by, she became wary. She was concerned when she learned which outside law firm Lay had assigned to do the investigation, Vincent and Elkins. She said she had urged him to use a different law firm because V&E had been involved in reviewing and approving many of Fastow's deals. In October, the lawyers briefed Watkins on their findings and assured her the accounting was proper. But she says they didn't provide details and they didn't show her the full report. It was a weird meeting, Watkins recalled. They said there was nothing to worry about, but one of them looked worried. He sounded like this a little bit when he was talking to me, you know? And um, I thought, is this grown man gonna cry? And, you know, that just alarmed me more. Um, Like, what is going on with these people that are supposed to be in charge? And um, I couldn't sit still. I was pacing the room and literally waving my arms in the air. In a recent email to us, one of the Vincent Elkins attorneys at that meeting, Joseph Dilge, said, quote, I strongly disagree with Watkins' description of the event. He declined to go into detail. A V&E spokesman said, quote, We cooperated fully in all the government investigations and were cleared in all of them. He declined further comment. Watkins said her faith in Ken Lay and Enron had pretty much evaporated. So my hair was on fire. I dusted off my resume. You know, I thought, I, I can't work here anymore. This, this is, uh, is going to blow up. This is horrible. Watkins, however, didn't take her concerns to the press, nor did she immediately leave the company. In fact, she wrote another memo for Lay in late October 2001, as Enron's death spiral had begun, suggesting how he might save the company and himself. But Enron's former director of private equity, Jim Timmons, did go to the press. He faxed us documents about LJM that broke the story open. 
WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. When Jim Timmons left Enron in early 2000, he took some documents from LJM with him. He told me he was just keeping them for his own records. He didn't plan to go public. Over a year later, in late August 2001, he read an article Rebecca Smith and I had written first mentioning the Fast Style Partnerships, and he decided to make a phone call. Frankly, to this day, very few people know that I was the one that reached out to the Wall Street Journal first. Timmons talked to Rebecca and then faxed us the documents he had kept when he left Enron. Those documents would become the basis of our investigation. Honestly, I get so giddy with excitement when I get something that seems good because reporting is mostly, we're out there like miners and we move a ton of ore to get, you know, an ounce of gold. And until then, we had been sort of collecting puzzle pieces and trying to see what would fit together. This, in effect, dumped a whole bunch of puzzle pieces into our lab. Rebecca and I learned that Fastow used LJM to raise close to $400 million. It also showed that Andy Fastow, the chief financial officer, was collecting management fees that were really unbelievable amounts of money. He stood to make millions and millions of dollars, and that this income was not being publicly reported in any way that an outsider could understand. So it appeared that he was favoring his own financial self-interest over the interests of Enron shareholders. And there's nothing more forbidden than that in the world of fiduciary responsibility. Exactly how much their CFO was making off LJM would soon become a matter of great interest to Enron's top officials. That happened in large part because Rebecca and I wrote an article on October 19, 2001, estimating that Fastow made up to $11 million from LJM. The company initially stood behind Fastow. CEO Ken Lay said he and the board believed Fastow was doing an outstanding job as CFO. And as Fastow later recalled in one of his talks, everyone had signed off on his LJM involvement. Rebecca remembers Lay sticking up for Fastow during a conference call with analysts. And then he went on to say that he thought that the way Andy's character had been disparaged was unfair. He said that his character had been, quote, loosely thrown about. So he appeared to be, you know, standing behind his CFO. But of course, we saw very soon that he really wasn't. In fact, Enron board members later said they were disturbed by our October 19th story about Fastow's LJM earnings. They decided to ask Fastow just how much he had earned from the partnerships. Turns out, we were a little on the low side. At least two of the directors had talked with Andy to find out how much money he was making from LJM, and that they left with the impression it had been around $45 million. And one of the directors who was part of that conversation, he's sitting there listening to this and he's thinking, oh my gosh, but he writes down on a pad of paper a single word. Incredible. Charles Lemaitre, the board member that scribbled that one-word reaction, 
recounted the conversation at a 2002 Senate hearing. He said this was far from the modest compensation the board expected Fastow to get from LJM. Lemaitre has since passed away. Fastow had invested $5 million in the partnerships and come away with $45 million, a ninefold increase in two years. What happened next wasn't much of a surprise. I really did not think that Andy Fastow would survive. That's typically what happens with companies. They fire somebody, and then they hope that the world will think that they've somehow dealt with it by firing somebody, which, of course, doesn't deal with a structural problem at all. So when you thought his days were numbered, were you surprised when you find out how small that number was? (laughs) Yes, it wasn't even days. It was day, wasn't it? The next day he got fired, or he got put on leave. Yes, he was relieved of duties the next day, October 24th. I've often wondered why Fastow gave that $45 million number to the two directors, unless he figured they already had a pretty good idea of what he was making. Otherwise, he could have obfuscated. Instead, he handed directors ammunition for his own firing squad. Even though Fastow declined to be interviewed for this podcast, he did give us a statement about his time at Enron. Quote, I believe that what I did was wrong, was unethical, and was illegal. I take full responsibility for my actions. I am ashamed and embarrassed every day of my life. To those who were hurt by my actions, directly or indirectly, I apologize. I don't expect you to accept my apology, but you deserve to hear it. The stories we published, aided by Jim Timmons' documents, revealed information about Andy Fastow and LJM that ultimately contributed to the unraveling of the company. So I thought it seemed like the more people looked at Enron, the more problems they found. Every day, the company was in the news with another negative story. People were losing faith, and the stock price was dropping fast. And it was sort of sickening to watch. The company appeared to be in free fall. That's next time on Bad Bets. This episode of Bad Bets was hosted by me, John M. Schweller. The original reporting on which this season is based was done by Rebecca Smith and me. Bad Bets is a production of the Wall Street Journal. This season was produced in collaboration with Neon Hum Media. From the Wall Street Journal, Kateri Yoakum is the executive producer of this podcast. Dan Rosen is the co-executive producer of WSJ Studios. Anthony Galloway is the global head of video and audio at the Wall Street Journal. From Neon Hum Media, Muna Danish and Haley Fager reported, wrote, and produced this season. Nafila Cato is the associate producer. Story editing by Annie Gilbertson and Vikram Patel. Sammy Allison is the production manager. Sound design and engineering by Scott Somerville. And the executive producers from Neon Hum are Shara Morris and Jonathan Hirsch. This episode was fact-checked by Justin Klosko. The theme song and many of the tracks you hear in this series were composed by Hansdale Sue. The other music in this season of Bad Bets is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John M. Schweller. Thanks for listening.